0: Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Daniel Bove of the Phoenix Suns. Now, before we get into this week's show, I wanna give you a brief look at the week that was, and I'll, I'll be honest, friend, this whole little intro segment is gonna be a little bit shorter today. Number one, fighting off a little bit of a head cold, which, I mean, really? Who gets a head cold in the middle of August? But evidently i'm fighting that off right now and number two we're in the last minute sprint with this complete coach certification i'm dotting my i's and crossing my t's and trying to get everything done so we're gonna hit it we're gonna do it quick and then we're gonna jump into the show with daniel so the week that was let's start with the weekend sportsing is in full effect in the robertson household right now kate is in soccer the boys had a spirited performance the other day played really well love watching their development again they're only five so yes they won but i don't really care that they won i love that they gave a great effort in practice the other day we started to work on like spacing giving each other space so it doesn't look like just this little like hive of bees flying around where everybody's just buzzing around the soccer ball the whole time so trying to work on ideas like spacing passing that sort of thing so excited with where they're at softball Man, had our our winning streak snapped. I think we were on like a four or five game winning streak, playing really well. Uh, Even won our first game over this weekend, which was a big shift because we went from fully coach pitch to the girls pitch three pitches and then the coach pitches four pitches. So it's a big difference when you've got another girl throwing you the ball, (laughs) a little erratic. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's rolling up to you like a bowling ball. Sometimes it's behind you. Sometimes you're getting hit in the head but it's a good experience and it starts to get them ready for seeing other kids their age pitching, which is going to happen the next league and the next level up. So uh, second game just didn't have our mojo really just kind of a good learning experience for Kendall because you know, I just raved about how well she played last weekend and uh, struggled a little bit this weekend, but partly our fault. One of her friends had sent us a text and just said, Hey, You know, can Kendall come over and hang out with Madison? Well, yeah, of course. And she ended up being over there till like 10.30. She didn't get to bed till 11. And so poor, poor girl. She was riding the struggle bus on Sunday. So she did okay, you know, but you could tell just wasn't kind of into it. It was hot, you know, had some issues hitting the ball. I mean, she still did pretty decent, you know, all things uh, considered, but just not on her A game. So we just had a good, you know, talk about that. Like, you know, look, sometimes... You can't do these other things if you want to perform at a high level or you got to make sacrifices so like good conversations to start having now in this kind of non-threatening environment so all in all good sports weekend also got to watch if you're unfamiliar one thing that we do as a family on friday judge us if you'd like but friday is pizza movie night so we have pizza you know this time jess made one she makes amazing homemade pizzas so we had that And then we watched How to Train Your Dragon, The Lost World. So if you have kids and you have not seen the How to Train Your Dragon movies or the series, the series is pretty damn good too, but the movies are are excellent. So definitely check those out. We love them and uh, definitely a good finale to that series. So that is the week that was. Now I want to give you my deep thought for the week. I love this one. I think this is very, very important and something that all of us need to remember and my deep thought for the week is to remember to run your race right not somebody else's not your neighbors not the people you see on social media the goal is to run your race social media is is such a blessing and such a curse and I think about this all the time being in the fitness space it's such a prevalent part of our society nowadays but social media is awesome in a lot of respects because I have the ability to connect with people literally from across the globe. I mean, just today I I asked uh, for some reviews and some feedback from people that had bought physical prep and I mean, literally people from across the world. We have people from uh, Slovenia, from the UK, from Brazil, trying to think where else, um, Asia, like across the world. And I can interact with these people. I can talk to them. I can collect their feedback in real time. Awesome, awesome, awesome resource. But at the same time, a lot of times, social media kind of sucks. And here's what I always tell people. The reason a lot of times you feel yucky when you're on social media too much is because you're looking at other people's highlight reels. Most people aren't putting, oh, this is that time that I failed. Or, oh, here's that time I took a really bad picture. Or, here's the time I shot a whole video and I had a huge blemish on my face. Like, that's not how we work, right? We want to put our best foot forward and social media allows us to curate and filter and make everything look perfect. Okay. So there's a practical example to all this. Like a while back, I got this, I don't remember. It was a DM email message. I kind of put it out of my mind, but somebody basically commented on the fact that, Oh, Hey, do you remember when like you and Eric Cressy were like equals, like when you're both coming up for T nation? Oh, well, yeah, what, like kind of what happened to me is, is what the, the person was implying. And look, I mean, if I went and just just scoured Eric's social media, I mean, the dude's got like 75,000 followers on Twitter. He's closing in on 100,000 followers on Instagram. Like I couldn't be happier for him. Man, Eric is like kind of like my brother in this game. We came up together. We co-authored articles together. We created products together. We lectured together. Like we cut our teeth together in this industry and he has carved this amazing path for himself, right? He was into baseball. He fell into baseball. He's successful there. And man, I am so happy for that dude. So why should it bother me that he has a hundred thousand followers and I have 20 or whatever it is. Like I don't really keep tabs on that. Give a shout out whenever I you know cross a threshold, but I don't really keep tabs. So here's what I mean by that. I want to kind of circle back to what it means to run your race And these are some questions you need to ask yourself. Number one, are you doing things in your life, in your career, that are important or impactful to you? Not to somebody else, not to your spouse, not to your significant other, not your mom, your dad, whoever. Are you doing things that are important and impactful to you? Number two, are you doing things that give you energy, that help you earn a great living, Or that make you feel good about yourself. Now, don't misconstrue that. We're not talking about hedonism here. But, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about yourself, you know, when you're, you know, out there in the world and and putting your best foot forward. Number three, I think this is really important as well. And I've talked about this a couple times on the show. But you got to find ways to minimize or avoid altogether things that make you feel bad about yourself. I'm no different than you. And I'm no different than, you know, the people that I talk to like Instagram. Great place. Great place to interact with people, to catch up with your friends, to know what. Hey, man, I want to know what Matej Hasavar is doing in Slovenia. I want to know what that guy's up to. I want to know what Luke is up to in Seattle. I want to know what Andy's up to in Alabama. I love that connectivity. But also at the same time, I know that if I spend too much time on social, I find myself feeling bad about myself or feeling like I should be doing more. OK, so here's something else I think that's really important to note when it comes down to it, our goal when we're trying to challenge ourselves or to struggle, right? Like most people don't strive to struggle, but I do. Right. Because I look at challenges. I look at struggle in things that are important to me or in the context of things that I want to master. Those are powerful. Those are the things that are gonna make me better. They're gonna help me advance in my career, in my profession, versus things that you would struggle or challenge with that are not impactful or that make you feel worse, right? So I think you have to kind of find that distinction, like struggle and challenge in positive environments or in a learning environment are a good thing. They help us grow. But when we're talking about struggle or challenge or things that lower our self-esteem, that aren't important on the grand scale, we need to work to eliminate. So at the end of the day, here's how I wanna summarize this. Do you, right? It doesn't matter what other people are into, what they say, what they do, right? If other people wanna work 18 hour days and they're only focused on business, like great, good for you. If your goal is to have a million followers on the gram, like good for you. If you wanna make $5 million in your fitness business this year, that's great, do you. But at the end of the day, you, meaning you, my listener, have to figure out what's important to you, right? Run your race. Do the things that make you feel meaningful and important. And if you do that, man, chances are you're going to be a lot happier and a lot healthier going forward. So that does it for our little uh, deep thought for the week. Quick uh, interlude talking about the Complete Coach Certification. And then we're going to jump into this awesome, awesome show with Danny.
1: It seems like every day, I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in our industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better trainer or coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results and the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in September. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 off the standard price when it opens. To get on the insiders list, head over to CompleteCoachCertification.com. Again, CompleteCoachCertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails that will be coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support. And I hope you'll pick up a copy of the complete coach certification when it launches. Daniel Bove is currently
0: serving as the director of performance for the Phoenix Suns. With the Suns, Daniel is tasked with managing the strength and conditioning and sports science departments. Before coming to Phoenix, Daniel worked as a strength and conditioning coach and applied sports scientist for the Atlanta Hawks. With a diverse background in fine art, kinesiology, and data science, Daniel utilizes a diverse set of skills in the high-performance space. In this show, Daniel and I cover a ton of ground, from his big three of training and recovery, to what movement variability means to him with regards to basketball players, how the Suns are using their quadrant system to better manage load, and why winning makes everything in the NBA so much sweeter. This is a really fun show and one I truly hope you'll enjoy. But enough for me. Let's do this.
1: Daniel, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, first, Mike, thanks for having me on. I've been a fan of the podcast for quite some time. I think the first time you had Joel Jameson on back in 2015, it changed changed my world on yeah. <laughs> training and preparation. Awesome. So um, thanks. Yeah, my name is Daniel Bove. I am the director of performance for the Phoenix Suns. I oversee the strength and conditioning and the sports science departments for the team. I currently live in Phoenix, Arizona, with my wife, Krista, my son, Tanner, and my
1: Labrador, Stella. (laughs) Love it, love it. Man, what led you to the world of physical preparation? Because I love hearing people's backstories and, and what got them started. Yeah, sure, so I had a little unorthodox journey to
2: strength and conditioning. I came into college as an architectural engineer major through my freshman year I ended up transitioning to fine art specifically drawing and painting which is something I've been wow. passionate about been passionate about for pretty much my whole life after that going into my sophomore year wanted to branch off into medical illustration so I started taking some kinesiology classes and I was like oh I can do this as a minor this will be cool in my junior year so I wrestled 4 years club at Penn State and during One of my junior year practices, I ended up herniating a disc in my neck and I had to take a few months off of being on the mat and grappling. So I needed something else to do. I needed to take my mind off of wrestling. and, And I joined a CrossFit gym close by called CrossFit Lionheart in State College. Went there, fell in love immediately. It gave me a similar rush that I felt when you wrestle a six or seven minute match. It was high intensity. It was it was with people. There was, it was bonding. It was a great experience. And I was like, okay, I can do this for a living. Like I can coach and, and get money for it. So started coaching classes going into my senior year, completely left art behind, just dove into kinesiology, started reading a lot of the, the Eastern European goat literature,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: Zazorsky, Verkashansky, and Bonnerchuk. That was pretty much what shaped my methodology really early on, and I, I was hooked from there on.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. So take me from those early days of reading Bonder, Chuck, and Zat and all them to your job now with the Suns. Kind of fill in that career path, if you will.
2: Yeah. So when I left Penn State, I was hired full time by a gym called CrossFit Center City. It's in inner city Philadelphia. That was a great experience for me because it's a very diverse clientele. And at 22, it just kind of threw me into the trenches and and I had to learn to coach every type of person and I learned from mentors Aaron Farmer who owned the gym and Tim Heckman who kind of took me under his wing taught me how to coach that was where I got my first experience early on logistically learning how to how to command a room things of that nature yeah it was what got me into coaching and then left there went to University of South Florida to uh, enter their graduate program for exercise science was a supervisor for the performance and and physique enhancement laboratory under Dr. Bill Campbell. We did some research on training frequency, body composition, ergogenic aids, things of that nature. And then I actually met Jeff Dolan who was in my program, who's right now an assistant coach, assistant strength coach for the Suns. So, it's funny how that turned <laughs> yeah. out. And, you know, left University of South Florida, I graduated, got married immediately and my wife and I moved into her parents' basement. So it's it's obviously a, a very saturated market. I always yeah. wanted to be in pro sports, but getting your foot in the door can be can be kind of difficult. So I started coaching at a CrossFit gym again, which made me panic a little, not because there's <laughs> anything wrong with coaching CrossFit full time, but because it was exactly what I was doing two years prior before I went to grad school. So right. started to, started to worry a little bit. And While I was in grad school, I started to fall in love with the sports science side of things and mainly because I enjoyed quantifying my own training, you know, just tracking volume intensity and exercise selection, tracking the inputs and seeing what outputs you can get from that always interested me in the training process, almost like training architecture, like building a program and what you can do as the architect of a program to elicit a specific performance response or change the physique, whatever your goal is. I I like that part of it. So systems thinking and how that affects performance. That's, that's really what I get excited about. So I decided, okay, if I really want to take that to the next level, I have to learn how to work with data. And if I'm going to do that, I need to just dive right in. So for about four months while I was coaching part-time at a CrossFit gym, I was spending about 30 30 hours a week, sometimes more, watching nothing but YouTube videos. (laughs) 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 I definitely owe YouTube a percentage of my salary because I don't think I would have gotten into the NBA without diving in like I did to mainly Excel, dashboard videos, Power BI, visualization, and some R coding, just learning how to create databases, how to visualize it and make it practical for a coach and how to communicate information, which I think was something lacking a few years ago in the field. And it's, it's blown up since then. But yeah. that's, that's how I got into the, basically got a phone call with Mike Ron Karati, who was with the Atlanta Hawks at the time. Yeah. We, we hit it off on the phone and they happened to be looking for a applied sports scientist slash assistant strength and conditioning coach interviewed with them, ended up getting the job. I was lucky enough to, to fall into that opportunity because I was able to learn from Ronk himself, who's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy, was able to learn from Art Horn, Chris Chase, Zach Markowitz, rest in peace, just a great group of people to really get my feet wet with and, you know, worked two years with the Atlanta Hawks, was able to upskill a little bit there and then learn the league and you know, going into my third year in the NBA, I was approached by Aaron Nelson and Brady Howe of the Phoenix Suns. They recruited me to basically build and manage a performance department from the ground up. So I immediately jumped at that opportunity. And my wife and I and our son Tanner made the, made the move to Phoenix, which is going into my second season with them right now.
1: That's awesome, man. So let's start with the basics, right? When it comes to developing a basketball player, you know, what are your big rocks or the key components of your philosophy?
2: Yeah, so I think with any athlete, especially professional athlete, there's really three areas that we can affect as it pertains to health and performance. And those are nutrition, sleep and load. When we break those down even more, I think the only one that we control pretty much completely is load. And, and that's training stimulus that the players will receive in the weight room or on the physical preparation side, but then also what they what they experience on the court. So the coaches and performance staff, they control that completely. We don't control how much sleep they're getting, how much nutrition they're actually paying attention to, but you know, when you, when you break that down even further, I think you have to understand the requirements of what an NBA season looks like, and, and I know other guests on your show have gone over this before, but the NBA season, 82 games regular, if you're a player who plays summer league, preseason, and... Postseason, you're looking at 100 plus games. That's a lot of load before they even touch the weight room. So, just being right. cognizant that, you know, it's not about you as a strength coach, it's not about you as a performance professional. You need to find out how you can fit around that constraint. So, obviously, when you break down the sport, running and jumping are the biggest rocks involved. It's a 48 minute game. When you dive a little deeper, 30 to 40 high intensity accelerations and D cells per game on average, if you're looking at starters and then you know where do these excels and d cells tend to happen it tends to happen with a lower center of mass and in multiple different planes and d cells tend to happen on one leg or a lunge like position so these are this informs the kind of movements that we're choosing and i think when you break it down there's obviously you know energy system requirements that that i think a lot of times are just going to be trained by the sport itself but what we can do in the weight room is, is really teach players how to manage gravity and vertical force. And we do that by varying positions, varying velocities and just making sure they can control their mass through space. And, you know, when you break the positions down, how you train a center versus how you train a point guard, I think that's something that I don't know if that's as relevant as it might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago, considering where the game, where the game is going, it's becoming positionless, you know, seven footers, can handle the ball. They can operate as guards once used to and forwards play the center position during small ball lineups. So everything's kind of merging together with positionless basketball or small ball. And you obviously have your exceptions. You have the teams that are kind of going big, like the Philadelphia's and the Milwaukees, but I think generally there's a lot of switching going on. There's a lot of positionless basketball and that informs how we train these athletes as well. You know, you know, as we if we want to break that down we're going to bucket guys based on their role in the team. And we have three buckets. We have our high minute guys. We have our moderate slash rotational guys and our developmental guys who who don't play a ton during their first year or two. And I think depending on the type of loading that they're experiencing, that's going to inform what we do in the weight room. For those higher minute guys, definitely it's about buffering stress and providing variability to the system. I know variability is a buzzword and everyone yeah. throws it around. For me, uh, I look at it for these guys is can they can they perform adduction, internal rotation, inflection in the closed chain? Can they control their center of gravity? Can they do it on both hips? Can they do it unilaterally, not just bilaterally? So really just triplanar movement in general is something we try to make sure our high minute guys are able to perform. And then the rotational guys, it's kind of a combination. It's those guys who play 10 to 20 minutes a game, we're trying to buffer stress with them. But you can also push for adaptations and you can load them a little bit more than you can your starters. And then obviously your developmental guys who play a little less time, you're more long-term thinking with them and you can load them throughout the season. These guys can train year round and you work closely with your player development staff with these types of players, just trying to have the long view in mind.
1: Yeah, that is, wow, that's a great answer because Bill and I were talking about this the other day. Like I'm at a point where I'm just tired of like these, these jargon type terms, like, Movement variability or what's another one? Movement quality, right? Like we just use these terms now with no like backup or no context to them. So I'm so glad you gave some context there because you're absolutely right. Like they have to be able to load their system effectively. And like one thing that that I always talk about with my guys is, look, when you're on the court, you may not need this exact range of motion that we're going to work through in the weight room. But I'd rather expose you to that in a controlled environment so that if you ever get there, you can control it. And it's not going to, you know, be something that could potentially injure you down the line, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, these guys do – they're patterned in certain ways for, for reasons that probably make them really good at the sport. But, you know, we just – we want to make sure they can – Get out of those positions and expose themselves to other positions, not just the ones they're stuck in. So I'm with you there.
1: Absolutely. So let's break this down a little bit because I'd love to just kind of work through the calendar year and see how your approach changes. When it comes to the offseason, where do you start with your athletes? And maybe what are some specific goals you want to achieve early on?
2: Yeah, no. So, man, the NBA season is a grind. It's, (laughs) you know, you might go 14 days in a row in the facility, not, not getting a a rest day. So it's, it's a long grinded out season when the season ends, whether that's, you know, maybe you get the postseason, maybe you don't. I tell the guys to get out of the gym for at least four to six weeks. I don't want to see them in the facility. I don't want to see them on a basketball court. I want them to get outside. I want them to have fun, see their families, go on vacation, renew their, their mental state a little bit. So that when they come back to see us, They're ready to to hit the ground running and they can get excited about training. Then, you know, after that four to six week break period they get, we really have 12 to 16 weeks to dive into physical preparation. And I think you can do some pretty crazy things to an athlete of their caliber in 12 to 16 weeks. Uh, You can be extremely targeted way more than you are during the season. You can actually dive in and be specific with each guy. You know, I, I can't get into specifics necessarily, but internally we know where improvements need to be made with each player. And these are things discussed amongst the front office and coaching player development staffs before we let these guys go home for break. You know, there's a ton of collaboration that goes on between myself and player development but you know, there's general guidelines that always exist. We do, we do want, like we talked about earlier, we do want to expose these guys to some, some variability, but you know, get them on some different surfaces, get them outside for their training. That can be difficult in Phoenix because it gets up to <laughs> 120 degrees. <laughs> right. A little hot. Yeah, a little hot. So, you know, if we do anything outside, we, we might hike camelback or get out, but we try to do it before 8am because then it starts to heat up. <laughs> right. and then, Obviously, as the offseason progresses, we do go from general to, to more specific, exposing them to more jumping and sprinting volume. It becomes about building their capacity and, you know, reestablishing reactive strength and reactive strength endurance. We towards the end of the off season might implement more aerobic plyometrics, HICT, and just different variations of contrast training. That's, that's kind of what the end of the off season tends to look like. I think generally without getting into too many specifics.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. And one other thing that is unique about pro sports, but I I feel like, especially in the NBA, because the summer is the off season is that number one, well, resources aren't scarce, Right, Most of these guys have a decent amount of money, and that means, in your case, they can go kind of to the four corners of the world to hang out for their off-season. So if someone is going off-site for the summer, how do you go about keeping tabs on them and making sure that they're moving in the right direction?
2: Man, it's gotten way more difficult now that we have a international roster, many, many guys from Europe and uh, Australia. We have guys all over the map. So this year has been extremely difficult on that end. Yeah. <laughs> but you know we we've brought in a new very very proficient staff and we tend to we try to make sure we're communicating with each player on the roster on a weekly basis some of them who are a little more local we do communicate daily with but we have a big enough staff where we like to send send out some of our guys to meet with players and keep tabs on them during the season they might train them at their house they might go meet the personal trainer that they're working with almost every guy in the NBA that isn't staying in the city that they play with they're going to have their own personal guy that they train with in the offseason which I think is great because again they probably get sick of us they see us every single day (laughs) for the duration of the season so I think it's good for them to get out but yeah we know we, we keep good tabs on them we just keep a constant stream of communication really we try to communicate with their personal trainers as well just to make sure that our goals are aligned
1: I love that. So I've got one more follow up to that because let's say, for instance, somebody and not that you're sending somebody to Indianapolis, but let's say you have an athlete that is living in Indianapolis or wherever, Miami. What level of communication do you have, say, with that private coach? Right. Because, I mean, I get guys in or, you know, I know people go to these destination cities. Is it more important to you to keep in touch with the athlete or their private coach or how does that work?
2: Yeah, so we typically start those conversations before the season is actually over. Oh, uh, we cool. start to speak with guys about, okay, you know, what's your plan for the offseason? Where do you plan on traveling to? And then that transitions into, oh, oh I'm going to be in Miami. Okay, great. Who are you working with in Miami? And then we actually will communicate with those coaches and those personal trainers before the season's out. And then that's we awesome. can hit the ground running come summertime. So, and then it's it's always a joint effort. We're talking to the player. And the, the personal trainer, sometimes at the same time, we, we want to keep open communication amongst everyone involved.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a, a good approach to things. And it's sad because I hear people sometimes in, in my situation where they're a private, you know, strength and conditioning coach or physical prep coach, whatever you want to call yourself. And they are like, I don't know, like strange or weird about interacting with the club I'm like, mm. man, it's, it's not about you, though, guy. <laughs> you know, it's right. about the athlete. So if you really care about the athlete, it only makes sense. Like you want to communicate with the athlete. You want to communicate with the coach. So that way everybody's on the same page. And ultimately that athlete is getting the best possible result. So 100%. Couldn't agree more. So it's obviously that time of year where, you know, late August, early September, guys are starting to trickle back into town and they're starting to get locked in for the season. How does that impact maybe what you're doing with them from an athletic development perspective, or how does your emphasis shift during this time of year?
2: Yeah, so first, you need to understand what these players, for the most part, at least the ones not playing international ball, what they're exposed to during the summer. And they are obviously, they're lifting weights, they're doing things with performance professionals, but they're doing a lot of on-court work with one-on-one style training, a lot of skill development, technical stuff, but they're not playing a lot of five-on-five full court they might get runs in once a week every now and then but they're not doing it day in day out so when they start to trickle back in first of all everything up until training camp is voluntary for these yeah. players they start to trickle back in they do self-organized 5 on 5 games they they'll come in and they'll they'll work with with my performance team but you know the performance side just needs to be cognizant of the increase in workload on the court that's happening, especially in a five on five sense. So that definitely affects what we choose to do with them in the weight room. As far as frequency leading up to training camp, you're looking at anywhere from one to four, sometimes five days. Guys tend to take the weekends off. But yep. once we hit training camp, you know, our, our goal is to progress load in, in a strategic way and, you know, consolidate stressors in the weight room so that it makes sense holistically and get them ready for training camp where, you know, we have two days and we kind of gear up for the season. So that's, that's kind of how the, the preseason grind looks.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, because, you know, when you're early in the off season, a lot of the guys, like, I may have them for 75 minutes, you know, 75, 90 minutes. It's generally a longer session. Their on court stuff. Isn't really taking precedence yet. Like they're in, they're getting shots up, but it's not that hard. But this time of year, man, I feel like almost undervalued, you know, cause it's <laughs> like, okay, well let's go in. It's like 40 minutes. Cause by that time they've either already got some run in so you're just going to lift right they've gotten all the speed agility plyos conditioning that they're going to need so okay let's lift a little bit or it's like hey man even if they're doing like one-on-one type stuff okay well like we've done we've covered a lot of these bases let's go in let's lift a little bit build some resilience maybe give you some movement variability back and we're on and about our business so yeah it's fun it's fun, but it's also, it feels backwards, right? Because at the beginning, you're kind of like the show for the first right. couple of months. And now you really realize, okay, now it's time to be a support staff member versus the the guy.
2: Exactly. And, that, and that's where the communication aspect is huge between player development and the strength and conditioning department and the sports science practitioners, because you need to have those conversations of, you know, they need to know what general to specific means. They need to know what technical tactical means to you and These conversations have to happen year-round, especially when you're going into the season because that spike in load is is a crazy thing. And if you don't manage it right, you're going to have guys that are entering the season not in great shape.
1: Yeah. So kind of playing off this point – as those guys are starting to come back in, could you give us, and again, I, I understand your situation, so I don't need like hardcore specifics, but could you give us some insight as to what like a preseason session might look like for you guys? You know, cause again, they're coming off the court. What are you trying to accomplish with them when they come in the weight room?
2: Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's even days when in the preseason that they might even hit the weight room before they hit the court. And okay. then there's, there's the opposite. There's, there's the days where they come in, they hit the court, they see us, you know, I've, posted a little bit on social media about a quadrant system, which is more conceptual in nature. And it's really simple. It's, it's just the interplay between volume and intensity and how that affects neurological stress and how it affects tissue stress of the body. And you know, it's as simple as saying we're consolidating stressors. If it's, if it's a difficult and intense day on the court, then that's going to make us train intense in the weight room. If it's high intensity high volume on the court, it's probably going to be intense in the weight room, moderate volume. And mm-hmm. then, you know, if it's easy on the court, we're going easy in the weight room because stress is stress. It affects the body, you know. The stress on the court is going to affect the body the same way stress in the weight room will. So, we try to consolidate to make our easy days easy and our hard days hard. You know, if drawing on a whiteboard, you can make it look all fancy, but it's not a it's not a difficult concept at all.
1: No, I love that. And I'm going to make sure I think I saved some of those videos that you guys posted from the gram so i'll try and dig those out and post links to those in the show notes because it was just really i mean it was eloquent but it was just really well put together and really well thought out and i i'm a visual person so that really helped me have a better understanding of oh yeah i guess i kind of thought of it like this but this just made it very easy to understand and apply so that was great
2: (laughs) yeah i love doodling man it's one of my favorite things (laughs) yes well
1: obviously the fine art thing you know you must love that So, last but not least, I've heard all kinds of different theories and philosophies on in-season training. And I'll admit, I've got a lot of experience with it in the soccer world, but not nearly as much because I've never worked for a professional team, so I don't have guys in-season. So I would love to hear, what are your thoughts on training during the season, and how do you find that sweet spot of training enough to keep them strong, healthy, and resilient without adding too much stress to the system?
2: Yeah. So. Going back to a couple of the, the topics we've already explored, I think you first you have to understand that during the season you're taking a backseat as a performance professional to what's happening on the court. We're there as a support staff. We're there to help manage them, their health, and their performance. We Using something, you can use whatever system you want, quadrant system, high-low, whatever you want to do, but just make sure that you are starting with the sport itself and then, and then working your system around that that's, that's what I would say. I think it's pretty, pretty general. And then knowing how to, to bucket guys, you know, we, we do train our high minute guys different than we train our low minute guys. And that's just, it's common sense, but you know, be smart about how you bucket them and come up with a system for, for how you, how you want to go about that.
1: Yeah. And that's one thing I definitely learned, you know, most of the guys that I have basketball wise are younger. They're, it's crazy, but 25, 26 are younger, you know, and they're all young pros. Versus in soccer, I had a much wider range. And so when you've got a 35, 36 year old dude that's played 400 MOS games, you can't train him the same way as the 21 year old kid that's trying to break in. So I think that's where a lot of times people like to have these really like complex, in depth answers. But in a lot of cases, just like pure common sense wins out. Like if you really just take a step back and realize, oh, wow this dude's played 400 games in his career. I'm probably not going to train him the same way as this 20-year-old kid. Exactly. All right, my guy, big question time. Since you're familiar (laughs) with the podcast, you have to know this is coming. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Daniel Bove one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be?
2: So I think this is a tough one. There's so much I would probably tell myself, but the one thing is I'd probably tell myself to spend more time Mastering some of the hard sciences that are out there, specifically physics, chemistry, mathematics. I think those are some of the most robust forms of knowledge and they don't really change. You know, mathematics now is so similar to what mathematics were hundreds of years ago. So they apply to pretty much anything that you're trying to do in life as long as you're able to communicate well and understand human emotion. I think if you're good at those things, you can do pretty much anything. And in, in my current role and what I do with testing and training and, and planning, and I think it would it would make me that much better if, if I would have probably focused a little bit more on those while I was growing up.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's great advice and something I think most of us, as we get more and more serious in the industry, always kind of look back and think, man, I wish I wouldn't have taken that, like, anatomy 100. Like, I wish I would have taken, like, the pre-med anatomy you know, and challenge myself a little bit more. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. When you're eighteen, your priorities are a little bit different. Exactly. All right. So, last but not least, we got our lightning round. Fairly short questions, but your answers can be as short or as long as you'd like. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Number one, you guys have a lot of new members on your staff this season, as you've alluded to. What's the hardest part of bringing a new team together, in your opinion?
2: Yeah. So, I think the hardest part is definitely trying to think with the long view and not trying to run before you walk. You bring in a ton of super talented people. We, we've, we've assembled a, an all-star staff of, yeah. of of practitioners and they're, what's great about them too, is they're all passionate about yes. what they do. And we, we, when you sit down in a meeting and you start throwing around ideas of, of how you can really, you know, change the game and do all these crazy things, it's, That's great, and you want to make sure you harness that energy so you can eventually do that. But I think the only way you can make it sustainable is if you do the easy, small things well first, and then you can expand from there. That's part of our philosophy right now at the Suns is we're trying to make this sustainable. This isn't a one-year plan. It's a three-, four-, five-year plan. How can we make sustainable success? And I I really think the hardest part when you bring these talented people together is making sure that you live by that.
1: I love that. I love that. Okay. Number two, what have been some of the most impactful resources for your development as a basketball performance coach?
2: Oh, man. My answer for this one's all over the map. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, in conditioning
1: specifically,
2: I, I go back to to the classics, man. The uh, science and practice of strength training by Zazorski is, that's a huge piece of lit for me as far as when I was developing my idea of how you train strength and power I still go back to that all the time. You know, people people might not like this answer because there's there's a hesitancy to to say it, you know, it it has value but in the MBA at least, but the three core PRI courses, I think the myokin, pelvis and respiration, from what they teach on on a biomechanical standpoint is mm-hmm. is phenomenal. And I think if you if you study those courses and if if you don't take anything but the biomechanical stuff, you're like you're going to be you're going to be fine. And then I always go back to Art Horn, who is one of my mentors with the Hawks. He, he always told me the answers to the questions you're trying to solve are not in your field of practice. And that pushed me to expand what I was reading and, and yes. what I was going after in other fields. And some of my favorite things outside of strength and conditioning are, I love the Inserto series by Asim Taleb. Antifragile is probably one of my top five favorite books, and mainly about managing uncertainty, risk, and how to make good decisions. You know more on the the Twitter and podcasty route. Naval Ravikant has been putting out some some fire content on just thinking about thinking systems, thinking, and how do you create value. Naval is he's a phenomenal resource for anyone who wants to dive into those areas. And then really just like the classic Stoic literature, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. I for my soul, I need that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know because. <laughs> When you're diving into the science and the literature all day, you can, you can kind of stop being human. <laughs> right. And I want to. I don't want to be a robot, man. I, <laughs> I like to, to think about thinking. So, and you know, I, I'm one of those guys where I'd rather, I'd rather read my favorite ten books a hundred times than than read a hundred random books once. I'm, right. I think I think you can take something new every time you read a really good piece of literature. So. That's that's kind of where I'm coming from on that end.
1: I love it, man. Very diverse, like you said. Okay, number three, the NBA season, as we've alluded to, is obviously really long. But rather than talk about the obvious negatives that might come with that, what's your favorite part of the NBA season? Definitely winning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been a
2: part of good teams and I've been a part of bad teams in the NBA and where you don't win as much. There's nothing like winning in the NBA. It changes the entire demeanor of the staff. All the way up to the marketing department, down to the coaches and players. It's just a different, a different vibe when you're when you're playing good basketball. So winning is fun. And then right on par with that is, like I alluded to earlier, spending so much time with these passionate, talented people. I think iron sharpens iron, and the people that that I work with push me to be better. And you know, I just I I love the environment that we have here.
1: I love it. I love it. Okay, number four, last one. What's next for Daniel Belve?
2: not to sound like a broken record but i would like to win some games (laughs) we are we're on the right track i I think james jones our gm and our head coach monty williams are they're putting us in a position to turn the ship around it's been a tough couple of years in phoenix but i do see some light at the end of the tunnel i'm I'm excited for that and you know what's next for me my wife really wants to breed english labradors at some point wow okay Um, I don't know if Phoenix, Arizona is the place to do that, but (laughs) that's something that'll be definitely on the docket down the road.
1: That's awesome, man. Well, Daniel, you've been great to catch up with today. Thanks so much for your time. Where can my listeners find out more about you and what you have going on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't tweet much, but Twitter, at Daniel Bove, and then Instagram, I've been posting a little bit more lately. Corey, schlesinger has been on my case about putting up some content so
1: dude he's a social stuff, media so. whore man he is like oh, he loves the gram
2: <laughs> oh man it's it's great though he teaches me something new every day about it so <laughs> yeah at, at daniel bove on instagram but that's that's pretty much where you'll find me The uh, thestrengthcave.com is a site that i have co-founded with someone that i went to grad school with andres vargas he's actually here in phoenix which is funny that we ended up in the same place but yeah. go ahead check out the strengthcape.com there's some good content up there as well
1: very cool i'll make sure uh, i put all those links in the show notes so people can find you but again man i know you're busy and really appreciate your time thanks for coming on the show
2: no man it was great mike thanks for having me
0: All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Daniel. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. He's a guy that uh, I've only known for a short while now, but definitely respect his work. I love the staff that they've assembled out there in Phoenix. And uh, hopefully I'll get out there one day to uh, catch it up and uh, talk shop with all of them because they've got an awesome, awesome crew. So with that being said, if you enjoyed this week's show, anything you can do to help share the content, help spread the message a little bit would be greatly appreciated. Whether it's email, Facebook, Twitters, DMs on the Instagram, whatever you got, anything you can do to help share would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So my friend, again, that does it for this week's show. Thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.